welcome to episode one of season three of Delving Into Dance. A lot has happened since the last season. There's a brand new website and another thousand listeners. This is pretty brilliant given the project started with zero budget and has been driven by the passion of dance makers and you, the audience. In particular, I want to thank all the people who have donated to help make this season possible. You can donate now at delvingintodance.com to help this little project continue. And a big shout out to Stephanie Lake, interviewed in season one, whose donation has helped paid for this very first episode. Thank you. Now to episode one of season three. In this season, I'll be presenting interviews from dancers, capturing the diversity of their experiences in dance. Starting with the first episode featuring a fascinating interview with New Zealand-born Thomas Fanua of Indigenous Samoan Tongan descent, Thomas started dance as a seven-year-old with a career that took off at the young age of 16, working with Black Grace. Thomas now works with the Australian Dance Theatre based in Adelaide. I spoke to Thomas in the dressing rooms at Melbourne Theatre Company at the start of their production week, where they'll be performing the much-loved work, Be Yourself, for the very first time for Melbourne audiences. I started by asking Thomas, when did he start dancing and why? Um, I started dancing basically because it was the only kind of exercise that I would do as a kid and I was quite chunky <laughs> and my mum sort of supported it because sport wasn't really my thing initially and um, all my other brothers and sisters were really active so she saw that I used to like to dance. We'd go out to like weddings or yeah, family get-togethers and I'd always be dancing. Yeah. So she enrolled me in ballet lessons and I started from seven, loved it and um, danced till I was around 16. Yeah, wow. I got my first job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you must have liked it a lot. Yeah, totally. It, like, it wasn't really something that I thought would be a career initially, um, but it wasn't until I got to high school where I sort of started to notice that it could potentially be a thing. Um, because, A, I, had, I have a point of difference because I'm Polynesian, and where I'm from, not many people do... Not many um, Polynesian people do ballet or contemporary dance. Yeah. It's a very niche kind of thing. So I... Um, honed into that quite young and my dance teachers were like these are the companies you need to go and look at and this is the sort of pathway you're going to sort of work towards and they sort of set a pathway for me and I followed them so the pathway is somewhat restricted because of your background for, uh, to, were they narrowing it or? I, I wasn't really narrowing it I think it was more just honing into my strengths and um, looking at companies that um, that would um, like me I guess and there's a company in New Zealand called Black Grace and that was where I started um, and the company is a Pacific Contemporary Dance Company and it's also the only full-time dance company in New Zealand um, so I was quite fortunate I did a secondment with them when I was like 16 and I got a job um, out of it which was quite cool um, and I was with them for about five years but I think in being able to sort of work there it gave me a real um, idea of what working as a professional dancer would be like it was a real it was an intense experience it's probably like I could, I could easily say I had the worst times of my career there so it was really like um, you're either going to make it or break it in some some kind of way so um, my teachers back in high school really did push me in the right direction in some some kind of like weird way yeah because I think from the outside for many people it looks so romantic totally yeah. they don't actually realise how much hard work it is and Definitely. how long you're away from home and all those other totally. things yeah, for sure. Well, especially for a 16-year-old, you don't really... Um, it was definitely my first time. I, I think I got my job in my, my first tour. I had two weeks um, to learn a show um, that we were touring through Europe for, like, seven weeks. And it was the first time I'd been away from my mum. I was just 
homesick. I was around. I think yeah, I was 16. The oldest up to me was like 26, and then the oldest in the company was 42. And they just did not have time for a 16 year old. <laughs> so <clears throat> they really put me through my paces and sort of made me work from the bottom all the way up. So that must have been hell being on a tour with people so much older and not being able to go. Oh, totally. Out and have a drink and do all that. Oh, sure, things. yeah. Sure. Well, they're all getting drunk and they're all sort of doing their thing and sort of look, looking after themselves. And I guess, yeah, it was a real, real sort of make or break point in my career, I guess. Yeah. So, what made you keep going? Oh, I'm really competitive. <laughs> yeah, and I wanted to be the best. So, I, yeah, I really stuck it out. I, was, I, I did an apprenticeship with the company for two years and I was with the company for five years. Um, but in that time, I, yeah, I was exposed to a lot of. Hardship. <laughs> I'll just say that. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think it could have it could have been either way. Um, there was potential to sort of put me off um, working professionally, but I don't know. I for me, dancing has been, especially when it became professional, it's been more about um, not most, not so much about myself, but about the sacrifices that sort of my family had to make in order for me to pursue what I wanted to pursue. Um, so I really took that seriously from a young age, and it kind of. Yeah, keep me going. That so what sense. moment does it become worth it? Like, is it when you're on stage or is Totally, it... yeah, performing is probably the best part. Um, and also just, the, I think performing for me, because I love performing, but also um, there's, there's points in a creative process or a rehearsal period where you're um, faced with some pretty hard personal issues, generally speaking, um, depending on what you're working on. Um, you're constantly faced with um, negative things and you're sort of learning lots about yourself, how to negotiate your personal feelings around your own sort of body image, around your own um, personal journey, whatever you've been through as a child. Um, and there's also, yeah, there's things that you sort of learn how to infiltrate and process healthy in a healthy way. Yeah. Um, so for me, that's probably the most rewarding part of my job. I get to sort of, it's almost like therapy in some ways. Sometimes it's like therapy, sometimes it's not. <laughs> but the majority of the time it's like therapy. <clears throat> What's that difference between a good performance and a bad performance? Because I've heard it explained that it's a very thin line between one that feels amazing and one that doesn't feel as good. But as an audience, we're sitting there and we have no, totally. we have no idea. Both of them well, that's look good, great, that's good. you yeah, know, generally. It's all over or do something really obvious. But. I guess that's, that's what makes... Well, you, you, it's easy to cover mistakes, but I guess it's, for me, when I've had bad shows, it's when I've felt not so prepared, um, personally. And that's not to do with anybody else but myself. So if that, that might be mentally not prepared, so you haven't done what you need to do to sort of get yourself in the headspace, and that rarely happens for me. Or you've recently been through something that's sort of completely taken you... Um, yeah, but that, that's made things personal and made your personal life um, affect your work, which is really unprofessional. Because <laughs> um, I, I think with our line of work, it's, it's it's a real weird kind of way of working because you're really heavily involved in um, your emotions and that, that kind of thing in normal day-to-day office work. That's just... yeah. I'm, you don't really work with those kinds of things. You're not asked to sort of deal with... <clears throat> like with Be Yourself, for exa- example... Like, the majority of it's working with, like, a caricature of emotion. So you're angry, but then you're time, timesing angry by 100. Um, you're not sort of asked to look ridiculous at work when, in actual fact, that's what we do day-to-day. <laughs> As a grown man, <laughs> a 25-year-old man, or for the 32-year-old man, you're being asked to do sort of ridiculous things um, and almost be like a child, which is... Yeah, it's, a, it's odd. It's an odd job. <laughs> <laughs> How do you prepare? Um, for a show? Yeah. My process for a show, I usually... 
so we have class. Um, the two things that I always do is I, I'm not very religious. I was raised religious uh, in a religious family, but something that stuck with me is I find a like, quiet place and I pray or just do something yeah, like a meditative sort of I pray, I pray for like myself, my family, um, for the show, for um, the company, and it's basically just giving me peace of mind. Um, I don't even know, it's, it's like peace of mind to feel like something's gonna take over if something goes wrong, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I do that, and the other thing I do is like three sun salutations and uh, splits right left. Try to do a middle split, and then we're good. <laughs> like that's just something I do straight away, side stage before we go on stage, but. And you're lost if you don't do one of those things? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I'm going to be really bad on stage. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. I read somewhere that you wrote, um, dance is like a religion for you. It was on your Twitter. Ah, oh, yeah, Dance yeah, yeah. is my religion. It's how I express God. That was a, um, that was a quote. That was a quote from um, Lisa Bernay, um, just an artist that I follow, like a spoken word artist. And something that's always really stuck with me, because I, from a young age, that's how I sort of felt. It is almost really... Religious, but not not so much religious. Uh, religious, more like ceremonial and ritualistic for me. It's um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a, it's, a, it's a weird one to try to explain. I just feel really, it's it's more, almost like an out of body experience, especially being on stage in front of an audience, knowing that they're just viewing you. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's odd. Yeah, it's so it really cool. Yeah, I mean, as somebody that's not a dancer, it's you know the language around how people describe it and explain that practice. Mm. I think is fascinating given that it is such a physical practice then to try and put words to that experience I think is totally. is obviously incredibly difficult yeah for sure um, so you did an indigenous residency um, with Banff that was sounded like an amazing opportunity yeah so, so I started with um, <clears throat> the indigenous dance residency in, at the Banff Centre um, it's, it's been I started there when I was 17 so I did my first residency there at 17 and for me personally, like I was, I was talking about um, when I first started with my teachers sort of pushing me in a direction of you're going to start here because it'll give you like a framework of what you need to do once you sort of career, uh, carry on with your career. Um, I, I felt like I needed to go and sort of experience the more indigenous side of things for myself because part of my point of difference and part of my strengths is knowing where I come from and being um, heavily connected to my heritage. And so my father is um, Tongan. Um, Samoan, so I, I possess those two. So those are two small islands in the Pacific. Um, but I, I have like a long line of like talking chiefs and just a lot of strength in my family line that I feel sort of um, influences me on stage. <clears throat> Even just standing and just walking down the street, I just feel, I, feel, I feel very um, surrounded by people. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in 2010, I think it was. I, I went. I was invited to do a residency at the BAMP Centre, and basically, it's like a three-week process where um, Indigenous faculty from all over the world come together and they create a residency for emerging professional artists, and they create a work on you and just teach you lots of life skills. But essentially, what they're doing is they're trying to explain the the connection between Western contemporary dance and marry it with this Indigenous traditional sort of mindset. Um, which is something that I've always been really interested in. And I think inevitably as a choreographer and as a creator, my, my work sort of is influenced heavily by my heritage. So from a young age, I was really interested in figuring out how that sort of works, yeah. or how the two worlds combine. And I think we're at a place now where, as, as an Indigenous person like myself, um, unlike my father's generation, we're in a place where being Indigenous now means 
um, you're influenced not only by your traditional heritage, but also by pop culture. By like, I was I went to a Western educate like I, I was educated by Western sort of education, um, sexuality. There's there's so many things that that um, that influence us now as in, Indigenous people. So. From my point of view, where my work comes from, it comes from that place of diversity. Because I have white friends, I've got like Asian friends, I've got like it's just so rich and diverse. And yeah, it's, it's just coming at it from a place from that. But that was it was interesting going to the BAMP Centre and being exposed from a young age to that kind of a process. How to um, yeah mix two kinds of worlds and two kinds of mindsets because in some ways they contradict each other but then also in some ways they complement each other so yeah yeah it was an interesting thing and I did that at 17 and I was there I went every year for the past 60 uh, six years 60 years not 60 <laughs> six years um and then I ended up being part of the faculty there so I started teaching and choreographing and um yeah just influencing this generational thing trying to um, just shift people's mind, mindsets and also getting them to sort of embrace um, what it means to be indigenous yeah um, which I think has been a thing in the past couple of years really because for me growing up it wasn't really something that you'd celebrate or well, as a young young Pacific Islander it was never something that I felt proud of mm. and that's only because in mainstream sort of um, theatre, art, just movies there's no, nothing no, no real role models to sort of look up mm. to that make you want to be like them, yeah. other than The Rock, <laughs> and I didn't want to be a wrestler, so I wasn't about that life. But um. there's still a lot of critique, I guess, around arts and dance. Also, that it still lacks diversity and it still doesn't represent, um, I guess, society. If you walk down the street, mm. um, and that's still not flowing through to yeah. our stages. I mean, there are companies that do it better, but totally. certainly um, others that. Could lift that game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah, totally. Um, having worked all over the world, are there particular audiences that stand out, or where you feel like you've been really well received? Yeah, it's interesting. This is interesting. So, if we're talking about like just like working with ADT, where we're doing contemporary work, um, it's very cutting cutting edge and abstract. Um, Europe is such a is such a loving and welcoming audience where they're just so they'll embrace anything even if it's crap <laughs> you know and that's just in general um, but coming at it from a point of view of my work when I'm choreographing or when I'm touring work that I've made um, it's interesting going to different audiences and seeing the differences in reaction and it's almost like a in some kind of way like it's, it's changing but in some kind of way they sort of exoticize or um, really get excited for all the wrong reasons in terms of what the work might be about and what, yeah, I don't know. It's something about, there's just a, a, diff, a definite shift in the way they sort of will, will watch work but it's got an indigenous connotation to it or if there's something that sort of makes it kind of ethnic, if there's like anything that sort of bridges on that line the audience sort of views it in a different way where it's more sympathetic as opposed to being critical. Um, and I, I, obviously it's a sensitive matter and people don't want to step on anyone's toes, but I think as a creator and as an artist, that's probably one of the most frustrating things. I'm going, having a conversation with an audience member or somebody that's coming to critique work and seeing that they're sort of holding back what they actually think because they're like, oh, it was great. It was absolutely great. It was moving and compelling. And they're just trying to, yeah, I don't know, en enable... Well, yeah, I guess I just don't want to sit on people's toes, but that, that's, the, that's been the difference for me, and that's generally speaking, like, around Europe, Canada, especially in Canada, when, when, when we're doing work with the Indigenous Dance Residency, the audiences feel very uncomfortable to really be critical about the work, which is 
essentially what we kind of want. Because <laughs> instead of being an Indigenous artist, I don't really consider myself an Indigenous artist. I could consider myself an artist of Indigenous descent. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it sort of just puts people in boxes, which I'm not about. So does it lower the standard? So totally. is the audience looking at it as through a lens of all? Uh, oh, that's great. You guys are doing amazing work. So it's kind of, yeah, patronising in kind of, some kind of way. But um, I guess that's also on us to enable... Um, an environment where they can walk into a work and or into a show and feel um, like they, they can openly speak about what they're seeing instead of not not trying to step on anyone's toes, I guess. Um, I'm really interested in the work you did about human zoos, and I think sadly many people don't know what a human zoo is. Yeah, sure. And that <clears throat> dark history. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Totally. Yeah. So I made a work. I started developing a work, or researching the work in 2012. And um, basically, I, I had stumbled across, when I was touring with Black Race, we had heard about these zoos, but I was out one day in Berlin, and we, we went to some museum, and there was a section of the museum um, that said Volkerschau, and that's the German name for zoo. <clears throat> and I didn't, I didn't know anything, but what I saw was, in this, in this exhibition, there was two female, um, sort of, what do you call it, wax models, they looked Samoan. They looked like Pacific. From they were, they were from the Pacific. They had Pacific dress on. So obviously, it caught my eye, and I was like, "What is this about?" Read the little blurb. It said, "Vakashal Human Zoo." That's all it said. Um, so I went home and started researching what that was, and lo and behold, I just came across this whole world of something. Well, just something that's been swept under the, the carpet in so many ways. And basically, what happened between the 1940s, or 1840s, sorry, up until the 1940s. Um, European settlers had been um, touring through, uh, as they were colonising, um, going around the world and colonising everything. <laughs> I'm sorry. But um, as they were sort of it's doing true. the travels, yeah, <laughs> as they were travelling, they, when they would come across um, land, they would either offer money to, um, to the natives or they would um, capture them and take them back to um, Europe to exhibit them in zoos. Basically, you go to a zoo and you see like a hippo, you see an elephant, you see whatever kind of animal, um, exotic animal. Um, you'd go into these zoos and you'd be watching people. So you'd see um, an exhibition about Pacific people, like Samoan people. You'd see like the pygmies, Africans, like the Mayan people. Like it was, there, was, there was like a just a world set up where you'd literally come in and just watch these people. And the thought behind the human zoo um, were... They, they believe that the, the indigenous people were the bridge between the monkey and the white man. Mm. The, the white man Darwinism. Being, yeah, of. totally. The white man being the superior sort of being. So that's an interesting mindset. And I found that not offensive. Obviously, it's, it's very intense and very dark. But there was just something about that idea of a supreme being, being a white man, that I really kind of got fascinated about, um, aside from like the exoticism and all the other sort of things that I found out. Um, and I started researching it in yeah, 2012, and then in 2015 I started developing the work. Um, and I called it Malanga, and Malanga is a Samoan word for journey. Um, and I created the work on a group of um, dancers in New Zealand, um, a group of friends that I've worked with for years. And we just started workshopping themes and ideas and things that we wanted to um, play with or speak about. Um, and we put the show, the work on, I put the work on ADT, and I had some guest artists from New Zealand come in as well, and we performed it and premiered it at um, the Tempo Dance Festival in New Zealand in 2016. 16? 2015 or 16. Um, 
and basically, yeah, the, the work was about human zoos, um, what it meant, and also what, what it sort of, what it did, so the impact that it has, impact that colonisation has on, on the land, but also from that point, um, looking at it from that point of view, from my perspective, as, as I said, like as a Pacific person of this generation, where I have a group of friends that are just completely, every colour of the rainbow, <laughs> we're just, yeah, so diverse, so... It wasn't speaking to it from um, just a specific point of view. It was just speaking to it from just a point of view in general. Um, and the cast reflected um, a diversity. So I had some of the dancers in ADT and the majority of them were European. Also, um, yeah, Pacific. So there was a real, a real blend, a real mix. And I thought that was important to reflect the theme because you don't really want it to just be brown people against white people, um, which is essentially where it could have been. But... Um, yeah, it was, it was really interesting and really scary in some kind of ways and also just talking to some of my family members because the, the tricky thing about Pacific culture is that none of the history is written down. So we, we have our, our, our culture sort of, it's rite of passage, so t- tattoo or um, oratory. So we have talking sheep, so um, all the heritage and all the, the information and history is passed down through these people. So they have the the markings on their bodies, but they also know um, everything, all the stories in their head. <laughs> so it's hard to just Google and be like, humans use or ask from a point of view of a Samoan person what it meant. And it's something that wasn't really spoken about. So you know, it took me like three, three, four years to really do an extensive research period so that when I did make the work, I felt well-informed and I knew the perspective that I wanted to target it from instead of just making a work that was going to offend everybody. <laughs> I don't know, yeah, and it was received very well. Yeah, like, for the most part, account. totally. It was it was really, it received very well for the most part. And I think for me, um, inevitably, the plan is to take it back to um, Europe, and because the human zoos at the moment are museums now, and I've been in conversation with some of the um, festival directors in Europe, and we're trying to tee up a tour through these zoos and performing the work in a zoo. Because ideally, I'd like it not to be a theatre work. I'd like to be performing it in a zoo or because I, I just feel like the work is more than just a dance work it's more like a physical theatre more of an experience it's sort of genre defining I guess because mm. it's instead of putting it in a, in a box of just dance but um yeah so that's the plans for it inevitably um in the next couple of years <clears throat> and museums still have such a place particularly in Europe even here in Australia of holding Indigenous cultures, artifacts, totally. and um, body parts, body parts, and yeah. Um, yeah. So it's the kind of it's a really, it's a really rich space. Definitely, and very problematic. Yeah, for sure. Dance as a medium is like seems to be a very safe space to have some of those difficult conversations. Definitely. Is that because there's no language attached to it in terms of a vocal language? Um, no, I think I think it's also it has a lot to do with. Um, on the director or the choreographer and the and the way they approach something, because um, obviously, like lead, for me, like I've been I've gone back to uni in the past couple of years to get my masters in leadership, uh, business leadership, and entrepreneurship. So it's been it's opened my my mind up to what the effect that that good and bad leadership has on a room, um, and I think. It, it, it is it. the the dancers and all the the people that you're working with will only respond to you the way that you sort of put something out there. So if you create an, an environment where it feels unsafe, or there's judgment, or etc. Cetera, etc., cetera, you don't get honest. Um, you don't get honesty, which is essentially what you want. Um, because I, especially for this work, I 
really did hand select the, the people that I wanted to work with, not only because of what they could physically were, were capable of, but also because of what their perspective could be. Um, and yeah, I was, I, was, I was really just wanting more... It was a highly collaborative process, so I, I choreographed... The word choreographing is loose. I, I sort of... I had the idea. I came to this group of people, and we choreographed it together. So it was highly collaborative. The work just completely took a shift from where I want, or where I was expecting it to go. And in so many ways, I was just blown out of my like my mind. Like I, did, I didn't even expect to sort of have some of the work take or taken to the places that it went. And it was highly, um, yeah, just based on the people that I was working with. So yeah, I think it, it's definitely dependent on the way you approach your group of people and the way you lead them. And I think if you're if you're secure and you feel safe about the subject matter, inevitably it'll just create a safe environment. But also just checking in and um, just making sure the company culture is right, if that makes sense. So you're not just dropping bombs on people and making... And the, but it's also as simple, because some of the, the subject matter is really heavy, making sure that at the end of the day, everybody's okay to leave the studio. Because some of the things that I was asking them to do... like, it, And it's not even just dance-wise. Like there's this, this one exercise where... Um, we're looking at the idea of colonization and sort of, um, but also migration. And I said, okay, we set the family image where there was a father, a mother, a little brother, a little sister. I said, okay, one by one, I want you guys to walk up to this family and this is your family. Say goodbye to them. This is the last time you're going to see them ever. That's like literally, this is the last time you're going to see them. Um, you don't know when you're going to see them. You're probably never going to see them again because you're moving on to something better in hopes of being carrying on the line that, that will have better hope and better opportunities and with the first couple of rounds everyone's just like oh bye 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 but working and working and working that to strip them right back to sort of get them to think about what that actually feels like and what that means or just, you're just seeing these people just crumble like we'd worked on it for three hours and these and every single person was just in tears just complete tears because once they had put themselves in that mindset of this is my mum this is my dad I'm not going to see you again ever it's like, it's like when you go to the airport and you know you're going to go away for a long time or if you're moving away that time's one million yeah. so yeah so it's, it's sort of getting, getting them to that point safely and once they get to that point trying to bring them out of that point as well where they can disconnect from where they just were um, and bring themselves back to reality and not be affected by those things in their personal life, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Which is tough. <laughs> it's very tough. It's, it's sort of, obviously, a, with your background in theatre, you'd be very used to sort of being asked to go to those kinds of extents because it's, it's not even about physically moving or being anything. It's more a state of being and just really standing on stage. And I think, for me, some of my favourite moments on stage or from watching performances is when I've, seen, when I've seen an artist or a performer just stand there and just command your attention and just make you cry by just standing there. You're like, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, yeah, it is, it's dependent on the leadership and you have to really know what you want, um, but also know, yeah, just be really prepared, but be prepared for things to shift and then bringing people out of those kinds of states where they can feel safe to go home and not be depressed for the rest of the night because they're just thinking about their family and thinking about not being able to see them or seeing a loved one dead or watching a loved one die you know just yeah those kinds of things it's yeah that's very tough i'm interested in that idea of studying business because i think um, yeah <laughs> dance itself as an industry is a business every company has to run somewhat as a business even if it is subsidised, it has to run totally. at a profit. Yeah, definitely. Um, and often it's not thought about in that way. 
And the way that you're articulating the role of a choreographer or somebody in the space actually helping mm. that team do stuff, how does that translate in a business world? In like a business learning world. about business? Well, it's interesting because in my class, so I'm doing it part-time, it's interesting going... Because I feel like my brain is like, I'm like a circle, so I'm just open to... But I work with, in, in uni, I work with people who are squares, where they're just like pragmatic, practical, this is how you do things, precise... No emotion, nothing practical, done. You get the job done, regardless of what that means. Um, and it's been interesting coming into work, being exposed to both worlds, seeing it from that point of view, but then also coming back to work and just seeing the reality of what our work is and what that means um, artistically. And I think it, it, there's much to be said. Like It's, it's given me a, a real um, ability to switch off emotionally when I need to and not be personal about things but then also learn how to negotiate the emotion so that it infiltrates into the work in a way that complements it or makes it more powerful instead of hinders it, which is generally what can happen when people get really overindulgent. And, yeah, and it's, it's a leadership thing. I really I, I do believe it's a leadership thing. I think from my own point of view, the reason why I was interested in studying leadership from a business perspective was because I had, in my last company, I'd ex- experienced lots of bad things that I just knuckle down to it being because of leadership. Also, just the dance communities in general, I feel like we do ourselves a disservice because the people in positions of power, not that they don't necessarily know what they're doing, but they just there, there isn't really an attention to what, how their approach and how they, they do things affect the community, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I don't know, it's something to be said about styles of leadership and learning different ways. So, and part of our uni studies this year is I've, we've studied two um, case studies, Nelson Mandela and Hitler. And Hitler, obviously, yes, he did horrible things, but as a leader and his leadership model, really fascinating. The way he sort of got groups of people to follow him, just super, super interesting. So you're just seeing ways to negotiate people um, and... Yeah, create an environment where people feel comfortable to give you the, their best, mm. but then also you're giving them your best, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So from a business perspective, it's, it's interesting. Because it's interesting. dancing, in many respects, is quite hierarchical, depending on the company. Totally. Um, but it is hierarchical in the sense that there's often somebody that makes the decisions, the decisions yeah. um, and the dancers follow and lack of job opportunities and all that kind of stuff act as this controlling factor totally. in that you don't want to upset anybody because otherwise you're not going to get your job. Totally, totally. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of leadership in dance, it's really fascinating. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's and that's, that, the hierarchical thing is a very um, old school point of view and it's, it's sort of a way that that's worked but it's not something that's been really thought about, if that makes sense. And I feel like with me... Especially like with working with the Indigenous Dance Residency, with working with my own work, working with ADT and other companies that I've worked with, every time I put myself in a position of power, I've been really fascinated with this idea or this um, this leadership model of lateral leadership, mm. where we're sort of and it works in ways, but it's a lateral leadership that sort of peaks when you need to peak. So the leaders make the decisions when they need to make the decisions. But generally speaking, it's just like we are all on the same level, and that sounds really hippie and kind of. But it actually really, really, it really does work mm. to an extent. Obviously, there's times where you have to pull rank, but um, I think generally speaking, people respond, and it takes a, a certain kind of person to take that lateral leadership and not become complacent. Because I feel like the hierarchy is a really 
good model for a company, especially when you have young dancers starting out straight from school. Um, not that they need it, but just to be able to sort of see what the senior members are doing and take their cues up of them is something that's really um, important. But even in a lateral kind of mm. leadership model, there's always the one person that will that yeah, gets totally. the name on the work or that does co- does actually hold some of the big levers. Totally. Um, and I think sometimes that's necessary. It is necessary, but it's also often um, yeah. I don't know. It's not it's not acknowledged, I guess, in a lot of companies. Totally. Where there is one person making the decisions. Yet everybody else is doing the equal amount of work, totally. and they're not getting the credit for that. Definitely, that work. Mm. The first time you worked for ADT was um, doing "Be Yourself" in Indonesia, and it's a work that you're obviously about to start performing it again. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the work about? So the work is about selfhood um, and the idea of selfhood, and Gary's approached it from a real sort of like he's. He's, there's two parts of it so he's from an emotional point of view but then also from um, an anatomical point of view so he's there's a lot of scientific speech in the first half that sort of analyzes what the body is doing as we are standing um, so it's like as he's standing so he is computing da, 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 da. like it's lots of scientific speaking it's speech and it's it's sort of um, giving us insight of how complicated our bodies are to work physically and anatomically from a scientific point of view but then looking at it from an emotional point of view as well what that means for the body so it's just a lot of, uh, uh, there's a lot of work that goes into something to, uh, goes into us in order for us to be who we are physically, emotionally, but then also spiritually. Like there's just, there's so many layers to us with like onions, big, a big humongous onion <laughs> with so many layers. Um, and the work sort of touches on all those things. So like sexuality, gender, um, yeah, there, there's, there's, there's lots of themes in the work that are really strong and compelling. And as a performer in the work, it's probably my favorite work from ADT because it is. It's so much fun. It's hilarious. It is as a performer to do. It's just because you're asked to do. As I said before, um, you're looking at emotions, but because we're performing them on stage in this way, we've been asked to sort of create caricatures of what these emotions will look like. So we're just being. We're going from zero to a hundred in so many ways, and it's it's very crazy and very cartoon-like and lots of fun. So yeah, I'm really excited for the audiences here, especially in Melbourne because Melbourne hasn't hasn't seen or we haven't been to Melbourne with it. So yeah, I think it's going to be a good work for everybody to see. Very physical and very crazy and very fun. Yeah, cool. Yeah, fun and contemporary dance, I think, is totally. really important. I think people forget that. Definitely. That's why I try and tell friends that don't go and see contemporary dance. It's like, well, it can be fun. It's not all serious. Yeah, it's serious. <laughs> promise you. Totally. <laughs> Are you a RuPaul fan? I love RuPaul. What do you love? Oh my god, especially... I've, I've followed RuPaul's Drag Race since season one, and I'm a huge fan of drag. Um, I do a bit of drag myself. I look like Serena Williams. But um, I think the thing I love about RuPaul is... Um, she's, also been, she's almost been like the unsung hero of... in some ways of our community, where she's sort of been the flag bearer, but has sort of gone under the radar for so many years. And only in the past sort of six to eight years has she become um, noticed and appreciated for that, I think. I love what she um, represents in some ways, and there's some things, obviously, that people talk about what it's done to her, but I think, generally speaking, I'm really sort of proud and amazed at how she's taken something that's very... Um, that could be very negative and people still do have negative feelings, but made it, has, has brought it to the mainstream and has made it 
cool. Yeah. And that's cool in some ways, and that's also not cool in some ways. I, I, I feel split um, emotions about that, but generally speaking, I have a lot of respect for what she does and what she's done for the community especially, and what she's done for drag, and what she's done for transgender, gay, bi, lesbian people. Like She's just really done amazing things in, t- in terms of putting our voice on a mainstream level and getting us heard, I guess. What's drag mean for you? I don't know, like drag for me, it's, it's almost like performing, like it's, it's an opportunity to sort of hone into a part of my personality that isn't, like the extrovert time, like the, that person that is super confident, super um, crazy, super, just, it's like the superhero part of, my, of me, I think. It's almost like the alter ego, um, somebody that's just, yeah, really extroverted, extroverted, and it's an opportunity for me to sort of get out of... Yeah, things that might be happening in my life or to take myself out of my mindset and to remind myself that I have a lot to be happy about, if that makes sense. Mm. And so sort of putting on the face, putting on the wig or dressing, depending if it's boy drag, if it's um, drag, whatever it is, just putting on a bit of makeup, forgetting about what's going on and just being actively reminding yourself that you have a lot to be happy about. (laughs) You're not, yeah, nothing to be sad about at all. To do it often? Yeah. Yeah, me me and one of the other dancers, we have a drag duo that we sort of work we do like shows and stuff in Adelaide every weekend but yeah it's just a bit of fun and um we're sort of at a place where we're trying to com- combine um drag with contemporary dance so we're sort of trying to make it a bit more weird <laughs> you know which is sort of like playing with elements to sort of marry marry the two worlds together and see what that sort of looks like um and trying to take it out of the commercial world and sort of making it a bit more abstract so well, that's the thing about drag is it was always on the edge. Totally. It was always doing stuff that wasn't. Yeah. I mean, that is a critique of Rue, but Definitely. Um, it was always on the edge. It was always something a bit different. It was against the grain. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds really cool. Totally, yeah. So it was just interesting. It'll be interesting to see what we can come up with. But What's your drag character? Oh, you've got a few. Her name? Yeah. Well, her name um, is Queen Kong because she's a big bitch. <laughs> she's huge. Um, but yeah, totally. Um, Queen Kong. That's the, the main name, yeah. Yeah, cool. Hmm. Um, so where where do you want to take your dancing? Like, what's next? Well, I think I think in terms of dancing, I probably have another five years in me, at this level anyway, at this physical level. Um, I think I've, I've been I've started building my body of work as a choreographer for the past three four years, and I think yeah, in the next five to ten years, I'll probably do that as well. And I'm hoping once I finish um, my studies. I'm saying I want to start looking into companies and whatever that might be as an artistic director, choreographer, executive director, whatever that might be, CEO. I think, yeah, I know dance-wise I'd like to make my own work, um, whether that be as an independent artist or, yeah, ideally I'd like to have a company. I think that company should be situated in New Zealand, back at home, because I think there's a real need um, for a shift there. But yeah, those are the sort of ideas um, but in terms of dancing yeah probably another five to ten years probably five years I think yeah cool I'm happy in Australia like I there's a whole Europe thing and I think there's something about Europe that I'm interested in but I think a, a company that I'm really interested in especially is Akram Khan um, I really like what he does with his work in terms of where I'd like to go um, so who knows yeah options there's, there's so many options I guess it's just about seeing what's right and I think timing I'm a big person about timing knowing when the time's right to leave somewhere or go somewhere or yeah 
Thank you for listening. If you'd like to find out more about Thomas or the Australian Dance Theatre, you'll find a list of episode notes at delvingintodance.com. You can also follow this project on Twitter at Delving Into Dance and on Facebook, just search Delving Into Dance. You can subscribe on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Now, Delving Into Dance receives no funding, so if you want to help support, you can contribute on the website. Also, it's the power of word of mouth that has helped reach so many people. So please spread the word. Stay tuned for future episodes with the likes of ex-ADT dancer Samantha Hines, Welsh dancer Gareth Chambers and Melanie Lane. You can also find previous episodes with the likes of Meryl Tankard, Raphael Bonancella and Delving Into Dance donor Stephanie Lake on the website and on iTunes. Until next time, take care.